First question this evening I'd like to say something about re- relates to, to some degree, to what I was speaking about last night. And samsara, the cycle of birth, aging, sickness, and death, always comes up in Buddhist teachings. Is this a connection to reincarnation? I realize nobody has died and come back to tell a story, but would you just ignore this question or do you have your own view? Is one dead and is that it? The Tibetans have a real preparation on death. What about the Theravadans? Well, Ashley, Since you signed this with your name, um, and I know I know you're concerned about getting older. Um, me too, and I take this aging business very seriously. Actually, whether you're getting up, whether you're aware that you're getting older or not, as far as I'm concerned, this whole thing we're doing is preparation for death. This is what going on retreat is about. It's what practice is about. As far as I'm concerned, I just I don't want to blow it when I'm dying. I think I was talking about this the other night. I don't don't want to just ask somebody to turn on the television or something, <laughs> just at the last minute and distract myself from from what's really going on. I I want to be able to get it right and and get it right as far as I'm concerned means go with it. If the body's falling away and you're faced with the utter uncertainty of of all of life. Uh, that's going to be fairly challenging. It's, you know, we're, we're threatened with losing everything. I mean, I mean, you're threatened with running out of tea bags. You can start feeling anxious, or running out of honey, or the chocolate's getting thin, or you're threatened with a friend going to live in a different country. You can feel devastated and have to go and see your therapist about it. And well, when we're threatened with losing everything, which is what this presents us with, I should think that's probably going to be fairly testing really. So uh, as far as I'm concerned, everything is a preparation for death. The great Zen teacher, Venerable Shunryan Suzuki, who famous for his book Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, uh, he once said that being born is like climbing into a boat that's going to sail out to sea to sink. That's it. Being born is climbing into a boat is going to sail out to sea to sink. And that's it. And that, of course, it kind of pulls you up a bit because it, it conflicts with the assumptions that we're normally operating on, which is we're climbing on a boat that's sailing out to a nice Pacific island where we can just sun ourselves and there's nice coconut milk all day long and, and nice banjo music or whatever. <laughs> ukulele <laughs> it's, uh, life's not like that and a part of us knows that 
And that's why the Buddha uh, taught about maranasati, or recollection on death. Not just uh, recollection on impermanence, but specifically maranasati, recollection on death. And, and over and over again said that it's one of the causes for our heedlessness is that we, we forget that we're going to die. One of the reasons that we get caught up in pointless pursuits, you know, and frivolous activity and arguments and, and disagreements and holding on to grudges and so on is because we forget that we're going to die and we, we think that minor frustrations and not getting our own way is somehow ultimately important. When you really come up against death and probably by this stage of life most of us have had the experience of losing somebody, uh, it takes you into a place of of uh, great openness and great questioning, like questioning what, what what is important anyway, and what really matters anyway. And when that question comes from that deep place of being confronted with the ultimate mystery of life, then it brings into relief the kind of superficiality of a lot of our concerns. Yeah. As I said, petty concerns, superficial concerns. Yeah like our reputation or, or such things. So this is a preparation for death. Sometimes we, we, we could skillfully and intentionally use part of our retreat to, in, to think about it. In fact, somebody came to see me today and, and was talking to me about whether there was still enough space in the memorial garden for their ashes when they died. And, and of course it depends on how long they stick around because they those cavities in the wall are filling up fast. And, but um, I, just during the meditation earlier today, I came up with a new plan of another memorial garden down at the retreat house. So don't feel anxious, there's going to be more space. And I just, I'm very pleased. There's a particular aspect of the garden down there that Lewis and I have been a little frustrated by. How are we going to landscape? It's such a steep slope. I just had this vision this afternoon. Well, we just build another wall, put cavities in it and stick people's ashes in it. And... So we've got another memorial garden, so that solves that problem from an aesthetic point of view. Um, we're still left, of course, with the problem that none of us want to die, but that uh, that's based on delusion. Yeah. That's based on the idea that we've got a choice. We don't have any choice. Yeah. If we had a choice about it, well, it might be all right to dwell on the thought about not wanting to die, but actually we don't have any choice, so it's, a, it's actually a very silly thought. I don't want to die. And so um, this person who was speaking to me earlier today very wisely asked me if I could arrange for having a little box made for their ashes to go in. And even was kind enough to offer to have a box made for my ashes as well, which I'm very pleased about. And I'm, when I get that box made, I'm going to get one of our friends who's a carpenter. I'll, I'll have that box up there on my shrine and I'll think about it every day. And so one day, you know, I'll fit into that little box. Not yet, but one day when I'm all burnt and crushed up, I'll go in that box there. And when our dear friend Sue died a few months ago, uh, Jim, Anagarika Jim and I went into the crematorium and, and we had to wait for a while before the corpse arrived. And, and so we were chatting with the, the cremators, the guys downstairs who operate the furnaces, and, and they showed us the machine that's used for, for grinding up the the bones, and it was very interesting because you look in there and there's all these bits of metal and it turns out it's people's 
the pins from people's hips and knees and so on that that of course they you know they don't give those back to to people when they give the ashes they they keep all the the, the artificial parts back and um, so one day I'll be ground up in there and I'll fit in one of these nice little boxes and and uh, not just me but all of you as well you know, all, all of us here before long actually it won't be that long a hundred years and none of us isn't that amazing thought I sometimes think about that a hundred years is not very long and in one hundred years none of us will be alive isn't that an amazing thought I find it amazing in a hundred years we'll all be gone finished there's something quite refreshing about it I really and I think the, the thing that's refreshing about it is that it, it's honest. It contradicts that which is dishonest within one. That's why, as I said to you the other day, when I had, about the age of 36, when I had my first conscious thought that I'm going to die, I was filled with delight. And I think it's because that it's just honest. It cuts through, it cuts through the um, delusions that we often operate on. And, when we're honest, will we feel more secure, more safe? So there is a preparation for death. Uh, I admit that, the, uh, as far as I know, that in the Theravadan tra- tradition, there isn't anything near as sophisticated as, as uh, some of the writings that I understand there are around in the Tibetan tradition. I, I myself have intentionally not studied any of them. And there's a strategy behind that. There's a a conscious intention to not read them. I know a lot of people have, but I know the way that my mind operates, that if somebody starts telling me, well, in this situation you should do this, this and that, and you shouldn't do that, that and that, and the way my mind operates is I'll start getting anxious. I'm going to get it wrong. I'll say, well, maybe I'll forget at the last minute and maybe I'll do the wrong thing and I'll grab a hold of this when I should have grabbed a hold of that. I just start worrying. If, I, if I've got to perform, I don't know what it is in my mind, it's something a little bit perverted, but if I have to perform, I'll tend to do the opposite. It's just, I don't know, sort of a naughty streak that... I got one of these very strict upbringings by these fundamentalist evangelical Christians that you know, we wouldn't like to do anything naughty in our house. And from about the age of 16 onwards, I've been quite naughty and, and there doesn't seem to be much I can do about it. It's just part of my character. So I think that that's part of me. So I'm not telling you that you shouldn't read the Tibetan Book of the Dead and these various other preparations that are offered as a support through the dying process. If it's useful to you, then by all means study it. I don't know what's in it. My own strategy for preparing myself to die is based on a a very strong faith I have in the power of, of mindfulness. And my conviction is that if I can prepare myself to live really consciously now, really with what's happening now, moment by moment, now, 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 always now, not speculating about then, when this happens, when that happens, when I die, blah, blah, blah. I'm not dying right now, not obviously anyway. So if I can always, if I can prepare myself to always be with this moment now in as unobstructed way as I possibly can, then when what's happening now is that I'm dying, I think that I will be as well prepared for it as I possibly can be. That's, that's my strategy, that's my, my conviction. Because in now, one is regularly challenged to, to face all sorts of fears of loss and 
worries and anxieties and if they're being received in the context of a accurate receptivity to this moment here and now judgment-free awareness receiving the experience as it's manifesting to me then uh, yeah I feel there's not much more one can do than that really um, I'm sure that the insights that have been shared in the different traditions about what happens when you go through the different stages of deterioration and disintegration and are born of, of profound insight and, and great wisdom. However, it doesn't mean to say that, that everybody's going to be able to apply them. As I said, the way my mind works is when I'm told that you have to do this, this and this, then my mind just goes off on a tangent and I, I start worrying. So, uh, I've, and I also feel this is quite in keeping, this strategy that I've adopted is quite in keeping with with the, uh, the practices I've inherited and as I've understood it from from my teacher Ajahn Chah, that if we have faith in the power of here and now judgment-free awareness, and then whatever's happening, we keep turning to that, that's our refuge. Then in the last moments with the disintegration of the body, the momentum of our going for refuge to the here and now judgment-free awareness, that momentum will sustain us, will support us. And then as for what happens after that, well, like I mentioned last night, I personally happen to find this, those, this mythology that has been handed down in the Buddhist tradition is, is about the best approximation of reality that I've come across. I, I like, it makes sense to me, 36 realms of existence, uh, whether it's literally 36 or whether that's the, just what the Buddhists took on because that was what was around in the time of the Buddha in India 2,500 years ago. I don't know, but I, I don't feel that there's many people around who have direct knowledge of these things. So if this is the way the Buddha spoke, and it is, he did speak about these different realms, and celestial realms, and what happens if you get born into them, how some of these celestial realms you can stay up there for eons, literally eons, as world cycles go by, and you just stay up there just having a nice time. And... Some of them, you apparently, some of these heavenly realms, you stay up there for so long that um, you just see everybody else being born and dying, born and dying. You see all the lower realms below you, and you start to suffer from the delusion that actually you are permanent, because you see everybody else dying, and you know all these other gods and not to mention humans and animals being born and dying, born and dying. And you've been around for such a long time that you forgot that you actually created certain karma to get born up there in these supremely high celestial realms and you start suffering from the delusion that you're a permanent condition and you start you know claiming all sorts of authority for yourself because you don't know that you're mortal so that's some of the highest realms and some of the lesser realms where you you know maybe get born for a few thousand years as a day where you're just kind of playing your harp and <laughs> just getting off on beautiful fragrances and, and things and and then one day, the, uh, the day was around you start to move away because they notice that you're developing body odor. And day was don't have body odor. There's only dying day was that have body odor. And, and when your friends start moving away from you because of your body odor, it's because everybody knows you're going down. And uh, the good karma that you've accumulated that got born in the celestial realm is running out, basically. You take rebirth in another realm. Hopefully it's no worse than being a human being. 
But apparently, according to the teachings, it could be. You could descend from a celestial realm straight down to an animal realm. Or one of the lower Deva realms, like there's the Earth Devas, the Bhuma Deva, which uh, that's like these Devas. I think there's some out here in our memorial garden. That's why everybody loves it so much. I, I suspect there's some Bhuma Devas out there. These are called earthbound Devas, what I think the Irish call fairies and elves and pixies and so on. Um, and the English used to see them, but apparently I think the places since industrialization they all went away to live in Ireland because England's not very nice anymore. That's what I heard. I mean, I, I've heard since industrialization that, that the fairies and they don't like England anymore. And there are probably some up in Scotland, but apparently there's quite a lot in Ireland still. And these Bhumade was apparently they just love flowers, they just dig fragrances and, and beautiful colours and so on. They live under mushrooms and, and in trees and so on. I met this monk once, a very highly respected monk, and he said he was a Dewa in the Bodhi tree in the time the Buddha was enlightened. He was actually and he wasn't he wasn't he was a perfectly sane and very noble monk and wasn't a Western monk, and the Western monk talking like that would make you ask questions, but he, uh, he was quite genuine in his sharing that he was a, a deva in the Bodhi tree under which the Buddha was enlightened. And so that's the celestial realms. Well then of course we know the human realm, which, which the Buddha said is the most conducive place to be born in terms of actually developing wisdom. Because we have a, a, a supreme intelligence which is on a par with a lot of the devas, our capacity for discernment and for appreciation. The appreciative awareness that human beings have is, is phenomenal. And uh, that's why we can delight in, 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 in lofty thoughts, in philosophy, and, and high thinking, and, and you can be absorbed in it for, for hours, and, and, and you can drop into meditative states. Well, some people can drop into meditative states of, of uh, great bliss and, and intellectual clarity. Apparently, if you spend your life as a human being like that, well then, when you die, you probably get reborn as a Deva, because that's the kind of consciousness you've been developing. But what the Buddha encouraged was actually, well, we have this good fortune, and he said it's very rare, we have this good fortune of being human beings, then the best thing to do is to use this discernment, use this reflective intelligence that we have to contemplate our condition, to contemplate the law of karma, to actually look at the consequence of our action based on our sophisticated capacity for remembering see what happens we do these these causes and then there are those effects now lower down around the animals they don't have the same mental capacities as human beings do and so although they do some things that have painful consequences they forget it very quick and they don't have the reflective intelligence that human beings have and so they don't have a morality that human beings have because human beings have the capacity for reflecting on previous actions, they can actually change uh, the way we behave. And so this is what's encouraged by the Buddha. Some of you might be familiar with what's known as the, the, uh, the wheel of life, well preserved in the Tibetan tradition. There's a great big painting of a, of a wheel and being held in the jaws of, of a monster, um, um, the god of death. And this wheel in the outer rim has got the 12 lengths of dependent origination in it. And then inside is the different realms, the six realms of existence. That uh, There's the hell realm, 
hungry, the hungry ghost realm, the animal realm, the human realm, the fighting gods realm, which is one of the 32 levels of celestial realms, and then the, the god-god realms, so the six realms of existence. And in each of these six realms, the Buddha appears. Now, when the Buddha appears in the human realm, if you see this wheel of life, you'll see the Buddha is, is manifest as a mendicant monk carrying his arms bowl because he's giving the example that uh, the choice to practice discipline or renunciation is a wise choice. It honors the reflective intelligence that we have to contemplate cause and effect. We can learn from our mistakes, in other words. Animals, unfortunately, don't really learn from their mistakes. They can be conditioned and programmed, but they don't necessarily learn in the same way that human beings can potentially learn. In the six realms of existence on this particular depiction, the, um, when the Buddha's in the celestial realms, he's playing, a, he's playing a harp because you've got to seduce these devas by playing the music before they listen to you. Anything that's got the vaguest bit of suffering in it, they're not interested. They won't pay any attention to you. They just go away and you know, play some music themselves. They don't want to put up with some boring teaching on suffering. So There's that, uh, that wheel of life, by the way. Is, uh, it, it comes from a, a period way back before Buddhism even went to Tibet. And it was generally found on the entrance to almost all monasteries, apparently. There was this depiction... And it was, a, it was a generally understood presentation, skillful presentation of the Buddha's teachings. And, and traditionally there was at least one person in the monastery, one monk or nun, who was well-skilled, well-versed in explaining this. Most the same as in pre-industrial era in, 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 Western, in Western European churches. You know, there were, you'd have the stained glass windows or the murals on the walls. This was the way people learnt things and could have those who were studied would explain them. They'd, people didn't read books, but they looked at these pictures and, and would learn. And so this, uh, this depiction graphically gives you an image of how the Buddha is um, presenting the, the wheel of life and death. I could say a lot more about that, but there's other questions here which I want to get on to. But as far as preparation for death goes... The, uh, the Theravadan teaching is by all means um, contemplate death. Definitely we should all contemplate death. Now, what particular strategy is suitable for us to take on uh, is, is very much a personal thing. But to be heedless around the subject of death, the Buddha said, is, uh, is, you know, is very unwise and, and very unskillful. And for those of you, those of you who, who have a lot of trouble actually believing in future rebirth. I won't get into the debate about the difference between reincarnation and rebirth at this point, but for those who, who struggle with the idea that um, you know, there can't possibly be a rebirth, well, all that's asked for in the Buddhist teaching is that we acknowledge that we don't know and we don't dismiss this possibility. We are encouraged to listen to it and to heed it. Uh, but the very least we're asked to do is to not dismiss it, because the truth is we don't know what happens. In this question here, it says, nobody's died and come back to tell us. Well, actually, that's not true at all. Quite a few people have died and have come back and have spoken uh, very, very clearly about the experience of dying. 
some who have nearly died have, have uh, spoken about it, some who have died and have been reborn and have come back and have spoken very clearly about it. Now, there are various ways of interpreting what has been said, but from what the Buddha said, he, uh, he certainly seemed to take it fairly literally, and so uh, asking whether I, how I feel about it, well I do, I choose to, to take the story as the closest approximation to reality that I've come across. Because something is referred to as a myth, doesn't mean to say that it's not true. For me, we use myths to describe things that our limited discriminative intelligence can't grasp. The discriminative intelligence has its place, for sure. A very important place, it's a very important part of our being human. However, it is limited. Just learning how to appreciate. I mean, if you if you're trying to appreciate a painting and you, you can't let go of your discriminative intelligence, well, the energy that's coming off the painting that has been put into it by the painter, one's not going to be able to sense that. Or a piece of poetry, if you can't let go of your discriminative intelligence, then then that world that the poet was occupying when when he gave expression to these words, or she gave expression to these words, uh, is not going to be available to us because we're, if we're locked into our discriminative intelligence. And so it's, uh, even in everyday life, it's important <coughs> to, to uh, let go of discriminative intelligence. Certainly in the spiritual life, it's important to be able to let go of our discriminative intelligence and open up to the mystery and just say, well, I don't know. I really don't know what's going on and doesn't solve our questions and that's why there are so many stories around and of course we're all free to to hold and pick up the stories that, that work for us but as I said I personally find this story a, a very wise and suitable approximation of reality there are, there are teachers around who have spoken about their own direct perception into different realms of existence my own subjective experience of reality is, is fairly basic and fairly coarse. Uh, my, my faculties are, are not very highly refined, but there are those who have refined their, their faculties and, and they can see and hear a lot more than we can. Uh, it's, I mean, even, it's obvious, I mean, even on the sensory level, I mean, even dogs can hear more than we can. I mean, there's all sorts of sounds that insects and other animals can hear that we can't hear these certain frequencies because of the limitations of our, our ear. And the, the eye is the same. The nature of the structure of the organ of the eye is such that we can only see a certain amount. Other animals can actually see much more than we can and they behave differently as a result. And other, some animals can smell much more yeah. than we can. Our organs are clearly limited to the human condition. Well, the organ of the mind likewise uh, is limited, but it can be developed. And that's one of the things that meditation is about, is, is refining down this, uh, this sense organ, the faculty of, of knowing. And once it is really refined, well then it's said that this can know directly, not just through speculation. For, for us it's probably just a matter of speculation of agreeing or disagreeing or 
picking up or putting down these ideas. But uh, I trust that it is the case that there are beings who have developed their mind uh, and are able to see directly into these different realms of existence. And, and from what they say, this, this teaching of the six realms of existence and the transmigration through these realms of existence uh, is the closest we can get to, to grasping what actually happens. So hopefully that's, that's useful.